Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 138 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 138 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, or in Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm going to give you a brief description of what the show's all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 25-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash writer, and each of you do this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s, but the show in two parts. First part of the show, talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the original song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics, and the second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who were the studio musicians in the song, whether it be the session musicians or the band members themselves. Talk about the history behind the song, where it was wrote the song, and the producer, the producer of the studio the song was recorded at, where the studio was located at. And the history behind the label the song was released on, and the peak of the song went up originally in Billboard Hot 100 charts when it first came out in the year and month the song was released. All that is in the second part of this show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, I have a big announcement for you guys. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but my EP is out. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that's right. All, you know, uh, these songs that are that were just released, um, well, three of them you may have already heard because, you know, three have been out for uh, for a while now for this year. And then there's, but there's four extra songs in there that you've that you've never heard before because they haven't been released yet. And uh, you know these songs are a really good description and accurate representation of who I am as a songwriter and a producer and a musician. And uh, I couldn't be more prouder of these songs. Um, you know, I'm glad that I got the chance to re-record those two older songs that I did because in the past when I was playing those songs to people, the number one complaint that people had was, Sam, you got to, uh, you know, change the key or, you know, like use some pitch correction on your voice because the thing is, is that you're singing in a much higher key than what you normally sing in and it's not sounding that good. So I'm glad I got to do that and those songs are being reintroduced into the world and even though the songs are, you know, f I wrote them back in 2013, I originally recorded them back in 2013, 2014 um you know they're new to you because you if you haven't heard them before you know so that's the one thing you have to keep in mind about these songs is that if you've never heard them before then they're totally new to you you know you'll be hearing them for the very first time uh so i would really appreciate it if you could do that um there it's basically it's out on all the streaming platforms in fact if you go uh to last two or three episodes i did of my podcast and you click on that link that was originally the pre-save link for the song and the pre-order link for iTunes. Well, that'll take you to a couple different platforms this, the, the album is on, including Spotify and Apple Music. And, uh, you know, you know, if you, it, it's on those platforms right now, um, I'm waiting for Amazon and some of the other ones, uh, you know, but I'm sure it'll get on those ones soon. But 
um, yeah, I mean, I played both the instruments on these songs and I, you know, I produce them, you know, and I arrange them and they're my labor of love. And uh, there are a mix of songs that are from my own personal experience. They're based off of my own real life. And there are and some of the other songs that are not based off my own personal experience. And they're actually kind of made up from the abstract, you know, so they're not entirely all, you know, from my own personal experience, which may appeal to you guys because you guys might not be able to relate to the songs that are from my own personal experience, but, you know, but you might be able to relate to the songs that are from the abstract or me writing from someone else's perspective. So these, these songs do have a quite a bit of appeal to a lot of different people. And, uh, also these songs, you know, have a lot of elements of music from the sixties and, you know, there hasn't been vintage sounding music, you know, in the mainstream in a long time, with the exception of Leave the Door Open, which just went to number one. I've talked about this before, you know, Bruno Mars, Silk Sonic and Anderson Pac, you know, they all collaborated on the song and it just had all of the ingredients to a classic song from the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, it just hit number one. And that's really amazing because that show that tells me that songs that have elements from you know music from music from that time could still be popular right now you know in 2021 you know 50 years later i mean it's really really amazing um but yeah i mean a lot of my songs have some of the elements that are in leave the door open which include key changes and major seven and minor seven chords so you know i mean all in and fade outs too you know, so a lot of that stuff is there. And it's it's varied in genre, too, because some of the songs are kind of slow songs, kind of like almost ballad-ish, except they're more mid-tempo. And some of the songs are more upbeat and catchy. So, again, like it's, it's uh, you know, it's all over the place as far as genre is concerned. But I would love it if you guys could check it out. Um, definitely email me when you've heard these songs at samltwilliamicloud.com or reach out to me on Instagram, iHeartOldies. And just a friendly reminder, the EP is called Turquoise Apricot, and it's under my name, Sam L. Williams, so please go listen to it. I really appreciate that. And as far as what's happening with my show, Join the Pantheon Network, um, I'm currently in the midst of having the contract that they, that they sent me being looked over uh, just to check to see if it's all good. And, you know, I want to make sure i understand it first before i sign it you know understand all the details and you know all the things that are that you know i i want to uh you know you know i want to understand what's what's what the what the what the deal is like first before i sign it um but i also want to make sure that I'm, i'll be able to safely transfer my analytics over uh you know to you know the new hosting platform that my show is going to be on that is their hosting platform, so that way, it's that's all good, and I won't have any issues with that. Um, but yeah, so um, that's what's currently happening with that. But I'm definitely gonna go with them because I definitely think they can get my podcast to the next level, and uh, you know, and you know, maybe probably by within this year, you guys will probably be hearing ads on my podcast. But I'm definitely gonna try to get ads to my to my show that appeal to you guys and uh you know i'm gonna try to you know concerts are coming back in 2021 this year definitely um you know because things are getting better with the pandemic so uh you know if you guys you know i'm gonna try to see if i can get uh, ads for concert upcoming shows for different uh you know songwriters or musicians from the 60s 
um, you know, I'm definitely going to, uh, you know, get, keep you guys in a loop. You know, I'm probably going to get ads that are targeted to you guys. If you guys like this stuff a lot and you want to see these artists live, if they have any upcoming shows, I'll try to get you some sponsorships from the companies that deal with the bookings for a lot of those shows. So that's one thing I'm going to try to do. And also, you know, different, uh, you know, record store day, you know, different, uh, record stores out there that want to advertise i'm going to try to get those too if you guys are buying physical music like vinyl um but yeah so that's the kind of those are the kind of sponsorships i want to try to get with them hopefully i can get those and uh yeah so i'm very very excited to the future of this podcast with pantheon so i'll keep you guys updated on that but moving on uh let's talk about the history behind last week's song and artist which was Del Shannon, and the name of the song was called Hats Off to Larry. But first, let me give you a little bit of um, a little pre-sort of uh, thing that I want to talk about with you guys before I get into the history behind Del Shannon. Um, because, you know, a lot of people, you know, credit the 60s as the beginning of the singer-songwriter movement. And I know what you're going to say, Sam, what's so special about that? Almost every single musician you meet now writes their own music. I mean, it's just, it's normal. It's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's what's to be expected with, you know, songwriters these days and more, more or less singers these days. I mean, if you're, if you're, especially in the independent artist world, you know, which is something that is, you know, tend to, tends to be focused on, at least in my world. I mean, you guys might listen to more mainstream music, but, you know, if you're a band, you know, or if you're a solo artist, you're writing your own songs. <laughs> I mean, that's just how it is these days. I mean, it's almost kind of looked down upon for a singer nowadays to not be the writer of their songs. Um, well, if you look at history, right, and you look at music from 60 years ago, you know, which is around 1961, 62, 63, um, you'll notice that there are quite a lot of singers that did not write their own songs. And it's funny because, you know, if you if you look at it right now, you might think, oh, that's terrible. They didn't write their own songs. Why? I mean, they're not even singing their own music. Like, I don't understand. Like, that's that's bad. Well, you might that's something that might go through your head when you're listening to a lot of music from this time, you know, and that's understandable because we as a society have been kind of conditioned into, you know, liking music that was written by the person that was recording the songs. And, you know, now granted in the mainstream pop world, you still have a lot of singers that don't write their own songs, but I mean, nowadays with artists like Dua Lipa and Phoebe Bridges, and like they're they're writing a lot of their own music. So, but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, it's it's kind of looked down upon for a singer to not really write their own songs. But the fact of the matter is, is that back in the early '60s, that was a very commonplace thing for a lot of singers. You know, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that these singers were kind of just like puppets on a string when it came to you know, the, the labels that they were, they were, they were, they were, they were being signed to. I mean, you know, the singers had almost zero creative control over, you know, the songs that they were singing. I mean, they were just signed to a label and they were just basically given songs to them by other songwriters and the singers didn't really have 
very much creative input over these songs. You know, they just sang, you know, they copied everything based off the demo that they heard and and they just sang the song the way it was intended by the songwriters that wrote it. And, you know, and the producers that would produce the song would, you know, would essentially, you know, come up with it with their own unique sound for the song along and they would team up with the arranger to create an arrangement that was basically a carbon copy of the demo that was recorded by the songwriters that wrote the song. So I mean, it's just the thing is, is that, you know, singers at the time were kind of powerless when it came to, you know, uh, you know, music. I mean, they were just basically they showed up to the session and read the music that was on that was on. They sang the songs that were written down on sheet music that was present at the recording session and they didn't really do much else. I mean, that was it. You know, so these, you know, singers were very much, you know, just puppets on a string i mean they were they went on the road and you know they did they did appearances on tv once these records were out you know and, and you know they, they they did performances live i mean that's that's basically what they did you know um you know and a lot of singers couldn't really have a whole lot of input as far as the songs they were recording you know they just had to sing whatever was on the sheet music and had the copy it based off the demo the songwriters that wrote the song recorded so with that being said when did singers started taking more control of their music and when did the whole singer songwriter thing come about? Well, um, the thing is, is that, um, a lot of people universally credit Bob Dylan as the person that invented the whole concept of the singer songwriter. And while here's the thing. So while Bob Dylan kind of had that sort of thing happen with him where, people were giving him so much credit and so much recognition based solely based off the fact that he wrote his own songs and everything was coming from his own perspective and there was no one else involved in his songwriting process. It was just him. And that, that created a lot of, and that all of a sudden became more appealing to people and people saw him as more of an authentic artist versus just some, you know, teen idol who was, you know, recording songs that other people were writing. Um, but the thing is, is that, um, you know, there was actually a couple of singers that came out before Bob Dylan that actually pioneered the whole singer songwriter genre before there was even such, even before Bob Dylan even was having hits. Cause he didn't have his first major success as an artist until 1962 and 63. So, um, there were quite a few singers that were doing this before Bob Dylan, including Sam Cooke, Neil Sedaka, and Roy Orbison. And then there was this artist named Del Shannon. Now, granted, the th- you know, the three artists I just mentioned, you know, they had they were working with other co-writers, and so was Del Shannon. But Del Shannon's first couple hits as a, as a, as a musician were songs that he wrote by himself. And he recorded them, and yet he was an artist that wrote his own songs and recorded them too. So, and he was, his first hits came out in 1961, a year before people even really were recognizing Bob Dylan. I mean, Bob Dylan really didn't have his first hits until late 62, early 63. And, you know, he, in those, in those songs weren't even songs that he recorded himself. I mean, Peter, Paul, and Mary were one, were probably the first group to break him as an, as a songwriter because they recorded his songs and, uh, you know, and he wasn't even well known yet as a, as a singer songwriter. That wouldn't happen really until 1965, but that's besides the point. Um, 
So Del Shannon, if you think about it, predated Bob Dylan as far as being someone who could, you know, a singer that could write his own songs and record them too, and not just be someone that was recording other songs that were given to him. He actually probably was one of the first, you know, major singers to really take creative control over his music and sing music that was more authentic to his, you know, life versus singing about someone else's life from someone else's song. You know, so that's that's a very important thing to keep in mind about Del Shannon. And he was one of the first guys to do that. And, you know, even though he didn't have much success in America, he had a huge success in the UK. And that also influenced other British invasion groups to, you know, cover his songs as well. And also, you know, uh, he was take really taken by the British sound too. And he actually was one of the pioneers and taking, you know, one one taking that British sound and bringing somewhat of an awareness to it in America when no one else really knew about it. But, anyways, let's get into the history behind Del Shannon now. Okay, so, um, so this is just uh, an overview of Del Shannon's career. Now, granted, uh, this episode might run a little bit longer than a lot of my other episodes in my podcast. Well, that's because I got a lot to cover here with Del Shannon. So please, you know, bear with me on this because there's a lot to unpack about Del Shannon. And uh, since Memorial Day weekend, I thought, okay, so maybe I can go a little bit longer this time because you guys will probably be just hanging out uh, this Memorial Day weekend. You guys won't be going to work or anything like that. So you guys will probably have some time to listen to a longer episode of my podcast so let's just get started all right so um del shannon that wasn't his real name actually uh he was born charles whedon westover and he was born december 30th and 34 in grand rapids michigan and uh that's where he grew up actually and he actually bought uh, his first acoustic guitar for five dollars and he at the time when he was young he loved listening to a lot of the country music of that time which kind of makes sense because a lot of the country music that was being released at that time was, you know, written from more of the authentic sort of, you know, perspective of the person that's singing it versus somebody else, you know. So um, and that includes artists like Hank Williams, Hank Snow and Lefty Brazell and, uh, you know, artists like that. So and, and those and, th- and that genre music was at the time very authentic and very real. And I think that a lot of that uh, presented to himself when Del Shannon became, uh, you know, uh, a musician. And at the time, his name was Charles Westover. And if you're wondering, okay, so where did all the sort of depression angst that Del Shannon had as a songwriter stem from? Like, where did it come from? Well, it actually might have came from an experience that he had when he was in high school when he asked a girl out named Karen. If, you know, she basically, he basically said, hey, you want to go to senior prom with me? And essentially, she agreed to do that. But then what happened was that two weeks later, um, you know, when it came close to the prom, you know, basically, uh, she decided, you know what, I don't want to go out with you anymore. I want to go out with this other guy. And basically, uh, and, the, and the other guy was one of, uh, you know, his rivals, like person he didn't like at all, actually. And basically, this is this is sort of the depression sort of angst that he developed you know, it happened like this early on when he was in high school, you know, so this, so a lot of what, you know, this uh, thing that, you know, spilled over in songs like Runaway and Hats Off to Larry, and, you know, even other songs like, you know, I Go to Pieces and, you know, Stranger in Town, a lot of this stuff, you know, stemmed probably from that experience he had when he was in high school, 
you know so um you know again like this 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 all sort of happened really really early on you know and um basically you know when growing up in you know michigan he he actually met a girl named shirley nass and they decided to get married and you know they decided to uh you know settle down in uh battle creek michigan and uh you know this is this was kind of after he was already served in the army so he already served in the army and he was kind of just uh you know performing in the army at the time you know and when he was in germany and then he left the army and settled down in battle creek michigan and then he got a job performing at this place called the high low club and he met a guitar player named doug demont and basically he had a group called the moonlight ramblers and he essentially encouraged Dell to join the group, the Moonlight Ramblers, and they had a couple of singles on excellent records, but they didn't do very well at all, actually. So, um, you know, he, Charles, at the time, he was still known as Charles Westover. So, um, the Moonlight Ramblers, he basically, he was the rhythm guitar player, and this other guy named Lauren Duggar was the bass player. And basically, you know, they essentially became a group, and then what happened was that, uh, you know, they, they, they started playing at the high low club a lot. And then essentially what happened was that when he was there, he wanted, one of the things that he was doing was that he was actually jamming on this really cool chord progression. And he, and he, at the time it didn't have any words, it didn't have any lyrics. And then he just started playing it over and over and over again, but it actually annoyed a lot of the, the patrons of the club and they were like, damn it, play something else. I don't want to hear that over and over again. And so what happened was that that chord progression actually was that, you know, A minor G, uh, A, A minor G, F, E thing, which later developed into Runaway, actually. And, and that all, that all kind of happened when he was, when he developed the stage name Charlie Johnson and he was playing in the Big Little Show Band. That's basically when that, how that song came about. And he then, then he met a guy named Max Crook. And Max Crook was originally, you know, going to college in Kalamazoo. And basically, uh, you know, he, 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 he met Max Crook at the Battle of the Bands, actually. Him, him and this other guy named, uh, you know, uh, this other guy named Par Dick Parker. And basically through that, um, you know, is, is, when, is, when, is, is when he met, uh, you know, um, Max Crook as, you know, Dick Parker knew Del Shannon. And he actually, so, so he initially, you know, when, when he first met Max Crook, he brought him with him that little synthesizer called the Musitron. And the Musitron was something that completely, you know, he was, com uh, Del Shan was completely taken in by the sound of the Musitron. He just couldn't, he just, he was, he was blown away by it. He couldn't believe the sounds that he was getting out of it. So he really was impressed by, you know, by Max Crook. And they became really fast friends. And then basically, you know, they they were playing mostly instrumentals at the high low club, you know, and it was a lot a lot of it was actually instrumental songs that Max Crook wrote. And basically, uh, that in Max Crook actually knew a DJ in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was which was his uh, hometown, and that DJ was Ollie McLaughlin. And basically, uh, you know, he he actually recorded a single with uh, with Max Crook called "Get Get That Fly Orny," which was released in 1959. So that sort of connection actually led to McLaughlin attending, going to the High Low Club, and seeing Charles Charlie Johnson and his band at the time. His name was Charles, you know, his real name was Charles Westover. Max Crook playing, 
and through Ollie McLaughlin, you know, is how Del Shannon actually got signed to Big Top Records because what happened was that um, Ollie McLaughlin had urged, um, you know, Max Crook to meet with uh, Harry Balk and Irving McKinnick of Talent Artists Inc., which is a which is a which is a publishing company in, Det- in Alexander Street in Detroit, and through that is how they got signed to uh, Johnny Vinesock's Big Top Records, which was basically a New York record label, which basically uh, you know which was the first label Adele Shannon was signed to, and that was the first label he would record on for a while. And basically, they, they negotiate a 50-50 split between McLaughlin Publishing and Balk's Vicky Music. So, essentially, McLaughlin and uh, Harry Balk basically controlled Del Shannon's career, and they would give him and Crook 2% of the royalties on singles released in the U.S. and 1% of records overseas. And then, basically, uh, that was when Charles Westover decided to change his name to Del Shannon, after basically, uh, you know, he came up with a name after the Coupe de Ville Cadillac, which and, and also he, he, he developed the name, last name Shannon from uh, a wrestler who used to go to the high low club all the time named Bob White, who actually used the name Mark Shannon. So therefore, he came up with the name Del Shannon. So that kind of wraps up the first part of the story. OK, so let's talk about the history behind Runaway. Um, for a second, because that was actually uh, Del Shan's very first big hit. Well, as soon as he got signed to Big Top Records, he was actually flown in. To, he, he, they went to New York City, and they recorded a single called his first single, which was called "The Search." And basically, uh, when they when they recorded this song, uh, they actually used an arranger that was a guy that would later be, become very instrumental in Del Shannon's early career, a guy named Bill Ramal. And Bill Ramal was, you know, did the string arrangement in the song, and he actually was also a saxophone player. And basically, when when they when the first session they did, uh, Shannon was really really nervous, and he just couldn't really get a good take in, you know, for uh, for a good vocal for the song. So uh, the producer for the session, Harry Balk, decided, you know what, I'm going to scrap this. And basically, uh, it was it was actually check this out. So. That was the first time that Del Shannon and Max Crook were in a professional recording studio together recording something, because uh, at that point they really hadn't been in a uh, in 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 a, in a professional recording setting really, because these two guys were from Michigan and they really hadn't been in a professional recording session, and uh, you know Max Crook had a couple songs that were actually later given away, uh, you know to Johnny and the Hurricanes, you know as instrumentals. And uh, basically, uh, you know, and it was it was for the next session that, you know, since things and since Del Shannon was a little upset that things didn't work out the, the first session, he, you know, he was encouraged by McLaughlin to write some more songs. And he wrote some songs like The Prom, A More Time, Contented Die, Honeybean. Those were all kind of up tempo songs. And basically, um, you know, and one of the songs that he that he were also wrote during, you know, to prepare for this session, you know, which was a little runaway. And at the time it was it had it had been recorded in Max Crook's living room. But basically, when they heard the demo of the song, uh, you know, McLaughlin heard the demo of the song, he actually urged Harry Balk and said, hey, you know, this is a really good song. I want I want this to be on the next session. 
And Harry Balk's like, well, you know, the thing is with this song, Ollie, is that it sounds like three songs trying to come together. What And what's that little thing in the middle? And basically, uh, but Ollie was persistent and wanted this song to get recorded in the next in, in, the, in the next section. And so basically, he, you know, he thought that, okay, guys, you got to record the song. You're going to be missing on a hit if you guys don't do it. So basically, that's exactly what happened. And Harry Balk kind of persists and he was like okay i'll record this you know this sounds like a really really good hit but he wasn't totally uh you know confident in Del shannon's singing ability so what happened was that when they set up the session at bell sound studios right in new york uh they essentially split this split the session between uh you know uh del shannon recording runaway and jody and max doing his instrumental songs the musitron called the snake and the wanderer and basically, that's exactly what happened when they recorded these songs is that, uh, you know, basic and, and Bell Sound was actually a really cool studio because it was one of the first recording studios at the time to get a four track uh, tape machine. So you can actually do like instead of doing everything live, you could have a you know rhythm section on one track and then vocals on another track and then horns and strings on another track. And you can actually do some overdubbing which was which was actually really cool at the time because every other studio at the time had a two track but the thing is about you know this particular session is that um you know uh perry balk because the who is the producer for del shannon he initially thought that del wasn't that great of a guitar player so what happened was that he actually hired studio musicians you know to play guitar in place of del shannon del wasn't very happy about that he actually wanted to play guitar on these songs, but Harry Balk wouldn't let him. So they got like, you know, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli, Al Casamenti, and Al Cayola to play guitar. And they got Milt Hinson to play bass and Joe Marshall to play drums and Bill Maul to play sax. And essentially, and a lot of the, the musicians who were there were kind of freaked out by Max Crook's invention of the Musitron. But then, you know, but then they, say, they said, look at man, I'm, I'm playing keyboards on the session. So this is like, this is, this is me playing keys. No, no one else is playing keys on this besides me. In fact, I think even though Mo Weschel played piano on the song, he was the star of the show. So, you know, they, you know, they had to obey to his commands, basically. So... Essentially, what happened was this. So they recorded the song, um, and the interesting about about "Runaway" was that um, it was actually it was done in a different key. It was done in A minor originally, but then what happened was that they decided to speed speed up the song and turn it and actually from A they they sped up the song and changed the key from A to B flat. And this was actually done, you know, on the assistance of the producers of the song who thought the song would sound better in B flat. And that was probably one of the first records to ever do that, actually. So that's actually kind of cool. And one of the reasons why, you know, he wasn't, Del wasn't allowed to play guitar on the song was because essentially, um, you know, uh, Harry Balk, who was a producer of the session, who basically ran a lot of these sessions, uh, he didn't think that Dell was actually a good enough guitar player to play guitar on these sessions. He couldn't read very well, you know, and that's why they got guys like studio musicians to come in for the session. And uh, again, like, you know, this was this was in New York in the 60s. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the studio musicians they were using were older jazz musicians who basically uh, were, you know, came in to essentially, uh, you know, plan pop sessions to make ends meet. 
you know, so these guys were not, uh, you know, used to, or they didn't really like playing on pop sessions, but they had to because this they need to make money, you know. So essentially, um, Delsh that that song was released in February 1961, and by April it was a number one record, actually, and it, and it completely changed Delshan's life because he later went on the road, and actually, uh, you know, it, it became such a huge hit. And then essentially, you know, uh, he he at that point he became a full time musician, you know. And essentially, what happened was this: so, um, you know, he he did a gig, you know, a couple months later at the Paramount Theater in New York, and he did the gig with Bobby V and Dion were there, actually. And basically, uh, you know, he was essentially. Uh, you know, he wrote the next his next single in in the dressing room, you know, with Bobby V and Dion present, and that song was called "Hats Off to Larry." And the and the next session that he would have, that was the only original song that he had up in his back pocket. All the other songs that he recorded for that session were actually uh, songs that other people wrote, like "Don't Gild the Lily Lily," which is Backrack and David, Burt Backrack and Hal David, and "I Wake Up Crying." And, and actually a song written by Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann. And, you know, again, he was at Bell Sound Studios in New York with Al Kale on guitar, Milhunts on bass, Joe Marshall on drums, and Max Crook on piano and musicron, and Bill Ramal on sax. And he, uh, Harry Balk was producing again, and Bill Ramal, you know, played sax and the arrangement Bill McFeekin engineered. And that became another big hit for Del Shannon, which was released in the summer of 1961, and by the fall, it was basically a huge hit. And uh, essentially, after Hats Off to Larry, um, you know, the hits, the, the, the major hits for Del Shannon were very, very inconsistent. Um, he didn't have a whole lot more major hits after this, except for Little Town Flirt, which is a song that he wrote with Marion McKenzie. And uh, Marion McKenzie was uh, was actually, um, you know, an, another songwriter that was that was a staff writer for Big Top Records, which is a label that he was signed to. And essentially, uh, he became, uh, you know, um, the, the one of one of Dell's many co-writers and Little Town Flirt became like one of the songs that he wrote with Marion McKenzie. And, uh, th- and, that, and that actually became a pretty decent sized hit. Uh, for him in early 1963, but before that, he had a couple songs that didn't do very well, actually, like So so Long Baby. Uh, that song only peaked at number 28, and then Hey Little Girl, which which only peaked at number 30, 38. I mean, these songs were not, you know, these songs weren't huge hits at all. And then after Little Town Flirt became a bunch of songs that just, you know, didn't do very well at all, actually. Um, you know, but again, like these songs might might not have done well in uh, America, but they were huge hits in England, actually. In fact, you know, a lot of the English bands were hip to Del Shannon, and he was also hip to a lot of the English acts. And he did a, in between in '62 and '63 did a lot of gigs in England. And while he was there, he discovered a group, you know, who hadn't blown up in America yet, but we're having huge hits in England, very, very big, and he decided, you know what, I'm, when I go back into the States, I'm going to cover one of your songs, because I really, really like it, I think it's a smash, I think it's a really good song, and even though you guys haven't had your hits yet in America, I'm going to record this, I'm going to put this out in the single and see what happens, 
And uh, that song was actually a song called For Me To You. And that, and that group that recorded it was the Beatles. Yes. So Dallas Shannon recorded For Me To You and released a single in America. But it, it unfortunately, it was before 1964. So it was before they really blew up, actually. So um, he, uh, he initially recorded it. And put it out as a single in 1963, a full year before the whole Beatlemania craze started. But it only peaked at number 77, so basically it was a bomb. Didn't do very well at all. But he was actually the first American artist to even have a song chart that was a song written by Lennon and McCartney, even though it didn't make the top 40. You know, and, uh, you know, essentially at this time, you know, he was recording at Mirror Sound Studios and he was doing a lot of, you know, these songs that he was recording with Bucky Pizzarelli and, you know, Joe Benjamin, O.C. Johnson. And, uh, you know, Joe Benjamin played bass, O.C. Johnson played drums, and those are the guys who played on Little Town Flirt. And uh, the interesting thing about this is that at this time, uh, he was having a very difficult relationship with you know, his, the guys that, uh, he was basically, you know, his, his, his producer, um, Harry Balk, the other guy, Mitch Michinick, you know, he was, he was having a very difficult relationship with them because it was a power struggle between both of them. And basically, um, you know, he, he was, he was essentially like, he wanted more, Del Shannon wanted more creative control over a lot of this stuff, but, you know, but, you know, Harry was the one who was kind of keeping a tight grit on everything, you know, so essentially, um, you know, uh, you know, and also Big Top Records was, you know, mismanaging a lot of their money. Like, for example, um, you know, what happened was that, you know, Mixinick apparently owed money to Bell and Mirror Sound Studios Studios that Del was recording at. And he was hounding, you know, Johnny Beinstock, the president of Big Top Records. And, you know, and, you know, for, for money and Beinstock initially paid the bill to Irving for the master tapes and severe and, and, and basically, you know, he, you know, he paid the bill, but he denied Irving access to the master tapes. And, you know, he actually severed, served, you know, basically screwed up all ties with talent artists, which is the publishing only Adele was signed to. And a lot, most Adele's master tapes were lost and most masters were only kept in the recording studio vault so that they would be close would be close at hand if anything needed to be done with them, you know, so that there was, there was a very, you know, bad relationship between both of them, and which kind of caused Dell to actually move to a different label and go to uh, Amy Records. And through Amy Records is when he hooked up with uh, a group of musicians called the Royal Tone, which included Dennis Coffey on guitar, Bill Knight on second guitar, Dennis Coffey played lead guitar, and Bob Kreiner played bass, and Marky Seri played drums, and George Cast K- K- George Kat Kasakis played piano and organ, and and, and Greg and Mike Popoff played alto and tenor sax. And essentially, if you're wondering who Bob Kreiner is, that's Bob Babbitt, the Motown bass player. And yes, Dennis Coffey and Bob Babbitt played uh, played on sessions for Del Shannon. Uh, you know, really early on before they actually became, uh, you know, uh, you know, musicians for Motown. So it was at this time that he switched over to uh, Amy and he was kind of coming back, even though the British invasion was starting. And he had a couple really, really low charting records, which are covers of 
older songs from the late fifties, early sixties. And these songs were, do you want to dance in handyman? And they were kind of, here's the thing. So when Del Shannon moved over to Amy, his sound didn't really change that much. Uh, he essentially, he had the same sort of organ, you know, uh, guitar driven sound that he had on big top, but he is the sound that he developed, you know, on big top basically carried over into the sound that he was doing on Amy records. And, you know, and he, and he was actually still recording in the same studio, um, bell sound studio actually. And, uh, and the interesting thing about this is that, um, you know, he wasn't really, he w- wasn't playing with, uh, with Max Crook anymore, but George Cassis played a clav- clavioline, you know, and it was, th- and it was almost the same sound as Max Crook's Musitron, you know, so essentially, you know, he was the sound, his initial sound carried over into his next records, actually, and, you know, and those records, you know, included Keep Searching, Will Follow the Sun, and Stranger in Town, and also, you know, he got a really nice hookup with, you know, with being with Peter and Gordon recording one of his songs, which I talked about in the episode of my podcast a while back called I Go to Pieces. And, you know, he did that song when he was doing a gig in Australia with the Searchers and Peter and Gordon. And he played that song to the Searchers, but they didn't want to record it. But Peter Gordon overheard and decided they want to record it. And they had a pretty big hit with it in 1965. So he actually had two records out at the exact same time. Both both songs that he wrote, he had to keep searching for Fall of the Sun, which, you know, was a pretty big hit within early 1965, and also I Go to Pieces, which was a song that he didn't record as a hit, but you know he wrote and Peter and Gordon did as a, as a, as a version of it, and that song was also in the top t- top 20 at the same time as Keep Searching for Fall of the Sun, so that was pretty good, even though the British invasion was in full gear and the you know the, all the British bands were taking over the pop charts at the time. Uh, he was coming back slowly but surely. But after he had, you know, those those hits, right, with Stranger in Town and Keep Searching with Fault the Sun, he kind of, he, he, he really struggled to have much, much bigger hits after this. And he actually recorded a whole album of songs in 1967 called Home and Away. And that album was actually produced by Andrew Lou Goldman, who also was producing the Rolling Stones at the time in in the, in the in the in the late 60s and that album was recorded in England but it didn't even get released and he had switched over Liberty Records and you know they decided they didn't want to release it so that that album was shelled and uh, and at the time you know a couple couple of years later in 1969 he had actually um, you know he he decided that he didn't want to be in the artist anymore and he wanted to work more behind the scenes so he actually, uh, you know, arranged and had to help in producing along with Steve Barry, uh, you know, a group called Smith, who had a very, very big hit with a song that was a cover of a song originally done by the Shirelles, a song written by Burt Backrack, Mac David, Luther Dixon called Baby It's You. And he did they and they did a really cool version of that, which actually made the top 10 in 1969. He also produced and Max Crook played organ on a very cool cover of the Impression Gypsy Woman, which was recorded by Brian Highland in 1970. So, yeah, so that's really, really cool um, that he kind of kept going, even though he really wasn't having any more success as an artist. And pretty early on, actually, he produced a couple of demo sessions for Bob Seger. And uh, Bob Seger became, 
you know, you know, later became, you know, the, the one of the most, you know, very well renowned, you know, 70s solo artists, you know, but at the time, you know, he was just an unknown, you know, guy trying to make a, a name for himself as an artist in the, in the early 60s. And, you know, and basically he was just a kid and uh, Del Shannon produced some sessions for him and they were able to do that because they were both mission guys. So they both really knew each other. And uh, essentially what happened was that, you know, things, you know, he, you know, he actually had a, he had a problem with alcohol abuse and this happened a lot in the seventies because he wasn't really doing anything in the seventies actually. So he spent most of the seventies, you know, just dealing with alcoholism but by the 80s, he was starting to have a comeback because he actually, check this out. So in the 80s, uh, he was actually uh, being produced by uh, you know, the guy who was also producing um, Tom Petty at the time, uh, Jeff Lynn. And, you know, and through Jeff Lynn is how he met Tom Petty. And he actually became very much involved in Tom Petty's career because you know, he was sharing a lot of the musicians that Tom Petty was playing with at the time in the 80s. And he was almost at the cusp of having a, a very big career come back at that time. But then what happened was that, you know, his oppression that he was dealing with got the best of him. And what happened was that he actually shot himself in the very end, very beginning of the 90s. And what happened was that the doctor that he was seeing at the time had prescribed him Prozac. And Prozac pushed him over the edge and he killed himself. And uh, that's exactly what happened. So, um, you know, he he was battling depression and anxiety. And he the doctor prescribed him Prozac and he died. And, and I know you're thinking, well, why did, they, why did he do that? Well, it was at a time before people even realized that that wasn't a good drug for people to have. Um, you know, for, you know, for battling depression is before people even realize that you shouldn't even be taking that drug if you're battling with depression, anxiety it was before people even knew that, you know, so, um, you know, just something it was, it was just at the time, you know, and uh, it's, uh, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, uh, the thing you keep in mind about Del Shannon is that, um, you know, he, he was one of the very early uh, singer songwriters who wrote a lot of his own songs from his own authentic personal experience and uh, essentially uh, and a lot of that showed in a lot of it, this, this, the big hit songs he had like Runaway and Hats Off to Larry and he was one of the very early songwriters to write songs that were very dark musically and lyrically you know, and they songs that were not about happy-go-lucky things that weren't like super innocent and super fun, which was which was which was the majority of music from the early sixties. I mean, most of the stuff was like either dance songs or just happy, fun, catchy songs. You know, so you know he was one of the very first singer-songwriters to really write super dark songs at that time. You know, but you know, again, like he. You know, he he also was very very popular in the UK, way popular than than uh, than a lot of uh, you know other stuff. You know, you know then then way popular. He was way popular in the UK than he was in America, and through that popularity in the UK, you know he was in you know he you know he was influenced by a lot of British music, 
and the and the British bands are really influenced by him in return, you know, and therefore, you know, he had that connection with being the first American artist to record a Beatles song and have his, and release his single and have a chart hit with it a year before the Beatles even had hits, you know, in America. So, you know, he had the first that that song peaked at number 77 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, you know, and you know, he you know, he was one of the first artists that really do that. And so, um, you know, Dell had a very long, interesting career, and it's kind of worth mentioning that he was one of the pioneers in the singer-songwriter genre before really even people, even before the singer-songwriter genre kicked off in uh, the early uh, 70s. So that's something to keep in mind about that. So actually, um, Do You Want to Dance and Handyman were actually recorded at Mirror Sound Studios in New York. Because Bell Sound was fully booked, and even though Mira was not as good studio as Bell Sound, uh, they had to use it because Bell Sound was totally booked. And but the but in October '64 is actually when they recorded um, "Keep Search from Fall of the Sun" and "Stranger in Town," which were both which were recorded at Bell Sound with the Royal Tones, the same musicians I was talking about, which include Dennis Coffey and Bob Babbitt, who later went on to join the Funk Brothers in nineteen in the late 1960s. So there's that. Um, but yeah, so, and by the way, just a quick little correction. So, uh, Bob Dylan did record those songs, those early songs that he became well known for, obviously. But, you know, Peter and Paul and Mary were the ones that had the, the major hits with them, you know, um, you know, because the other songs were kind of just underground FM uh, songs, you know, folk songs. They weren't really big in the pop market yet. But yeah, so um, that concludes. Part 2 of episode number 138 of my 60 Music Podcast, a Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams, and, you know, again, thank you guys for, you know, sticking around and listening to uh, the rest of this, uh, you know, this podcast. Um, I know it's a little longer than some of my previous episodes uh, that I've done recently, but I figured that since it's Memorial Day weekend, and you guys are probably just hanging out right now, not doing much of anything, because um, you know you guys have an extra day off if you're working right now, if you're back to work. Um, you know, I figured that you guys would probably be able to have more time to listen to a longer podcast episode. Um, you know, since uh, it's a, it's a long weekend. You know, so. Um, that's why this episode is a little bit longer than the, my previous episodes. But I thought, you know what, since it's Memorial Day weekend, I thought you guys would have time to listen to a longer episode of my podcast. But yeah, so, um, if you found out some really cool and interesting facts about, uh, this week's artist, you never knew anything about them. You're like, wow, I've never heard of Del Shannon. I'm, I'm a millennial and I'm like, I'm blown away by all the stuff that he, you know, his history. Well, you can email me at samltwilliacloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. And please do listen to my EP that just came out on Friday. I would love if you guys could listen to it because, you know, those songs, you know, those four extra songs are so good and they really represent, really do a good job representing me as a songwriter and a musician. And you'll get to hear... Two new versions of old songs that I wrote back in 2013, plus two new songs. Um, one of them I actually co-wrote, so that's really cool. And uh, yeah, so, and you're gonna hear me playing on these songs as well as singing, and you know, as well as these songs that I wrote. You know, these are my songs, my original songs too. So, 
love if you guys can check this out. I really, really appreciate it if you can do that. Um, you know, and let me know what you think of these songs too, because again, like, you know, if you listen to this podcast and you like the music I talk about on here, then you'll love my music because it's very much within the same vein as a lot of the songs I talk about on my podcast, you know. So please do that. You can email me at samltwilliamicloud.com. Let me know what you think of these songs, or you can reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And the link to those, my EP is in the description of this episode of this podcast. We'd love if you guys can do that. Um, also, um, the the Voyage LA, uh, actually, it's, it's Shout Out LA, technically. Um, the Shout Out LA feature came out earlier this week, and... You know, it's another really cool interview. I talk about a lot of cool stuff in there. So uh, please put the link, you know, if, if you guys want to listen to that, uh, read that. And the link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast. So please go read that. We'd love that you can do that. Um, you know, you can email me at samltwilliamicloud.com if you liked, you know, that feature and you thought it was cool and you, and you learned a lot of cool stuff about me. Um, I'm glad that finally came out. So link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast. And, of course, as usual, link to my Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. And there will be able to find all the songs I've talked about on the show so far, including some of the ones I've mentioned in interview episodes. Um, if you found out, if, if you listen to those playlists and you, and you found out and you learned about some, and if you like most of the songs in there and you found out about some really cool and interesting songs you never heard before from, you know, listening to those playlists and you want to suggest more songs to talk about next time my podcast and I haven't yet, then please email me. At samltboyicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram. I hear all these. And another thing you can check out is the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. Um, there you'll be able to find my, my very own custom logo for this podcast attached to all these really cool merch items. That, And if you decide to buy something from there, the item will ship right to your door. It's really, really easy, super convenient, and uh, we'd love it if you guys could email me let me know what you think of the prices of each item in the store, plus the logo itself. You can do that by emailing me at samltwilliamicloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, oldies. So, um, but yeah, so my EP is out, so please go listen to that, and and you know, it's basically wherever you stream, you know, wherever you can stream music is where you'll be able to find it. Um, you know, it's under my stage name, Sam L. Williams. Uh, you know, um, I think eventually I'll be having a release show for it, even though it's came out this weekend, uh, you know, because, you know, the live music hasn't totally come back yet, but it is coming back very, very soon in L.A. So definitely looking forward to that. But yeah, so, um, you know, again, I'm Sam Williams. And uh, thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please. Keep things real.